This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. Other side of midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Well, um, I've talked before about my friend, the late great Joe Franklin. If you're not familiar with Joe Franklin, I, I I have sympathy for you because he is quite simply, in my view, the one of the greatest TV and radio talk show hosts of all time. And just an incredible personality and a heck of a nice guy. Fortunately, he passed away a few years ago, and uh, I miss him a great deal. But anyway, I'm reading the Wall Street Journal this weekend, and they had a story about Joe Franklin. No, not Joe Franklin, the commentator of the TV talk shows, who would say, uh, my friends, here we are strolling down memory lane, whether it's uh, 1 o'clock in the morning, 3 o'clock in the morning, or 8 a.m. in the morning, we still say, good morning. No. J.O. Franklin, Joe Franklin, who I have to tell you before this front page story in this weekend's Wall Street Journal, I did not know who she was. And what a fascinating article. I am going to read. I just linked to it right now on my Facebook page. You can read the whole thing for yourself because it's worth reading. It's simultaneously riveting, fascinating and incredibly sad. Um, If you don't have a subscription to the Wall Street Journal. You can uh, just go to archive.ph and copy and paste the link in there, and you can read it on there. But anyway, University of Florida officials went back and forth with documentary filmmaker Joe Franklin. Again, not the man that said, uh, uh, Martin Paint, it ain't just paint. They went back and forth with documentary filmmaker Joe Franklin over details for a planned gala in Franklin's honor at the Four Seasons Hotel in Washington, D.C. Now, that's something. Franklin had pledged $2 million to her alma mater and requested her guest list for the party include the entire staff of the PBS NewsHour. A day before the gala, school officials learned her seven-figure check had bounced. Now, imagine. You got this big gala because of a seven-figure donor that's giving $2 million the day before the gala. A lot of effort, a lot of planning, a lot of money goes into planning a gala. Just ask Margot Katsimatidis. She is the master gala planner of anybody I've ever seen. Nobody puts on a gala like her. But the day before, the person they're honoring, their check bounces. So they boarded their flight to Washington 
where the gala was going to be, hoping to straighten everything out. So then the next day, the day of the gala, they found out that Miss Franklin had not arrived at the Four Seasons, and the credit card number she gave the hotel wasn't working. A person who identified as Franklin's assistant emailed to say Franklin had broken her foot and couldn't make it to Washington. University workers began phoning guests to say the gala was canceled. So the school's esteemed graduate, once a journalist and documentary filmmaker specializing in the Middle East, and this is the whole story in the Wall Street Journal, emerged as a troubled and gifted fabulist. The $2 million gift was an illusion, and it was just one in a years-long string of fantasies concocted by Franklin, who tumbled from a life of apparent success to homelessness. For years, she persuaded many people around her that she was living the high life. But she was homeless. This homeless and, I think, mentally ill woman basically tricked all sorts of people into thinking she was super wealthy. I mean, this is the stuff of a movie. I guarantee you they're going to make a a movie about this woman's life. I mean, the sad thing is I think it would have to be a movie that would be based on a true story because in in actuality it's pretty sad. So her career was focused on covering the Middle East. She went from living comfortably to being homeless and denying reality. There were nights she lived in a hotel parking garage in South Florida. She reported, she, she apparently, according to the journal, she befriended people at a local Starbucks and told them about having a personal driver and her home on Jupiter Island. She told them she stayed at a local hotel in order to remain near her job. And the regulars at Starbucks gradually realized she often wore the same clothes and had holes in her shoes. Uh, Reportedly, Franklin claimed she did not own a cell phone to avoid being tracked by the Saudis. Her brother, George Franklin, wrote um, to his family back in 2014, she is very ill and we need to have her put into a medical treatment facility of some type before she harms other people and herself. He reportedly said Franklin wasn't ever going to admit she had a problem. See, Joe Franklin had married and had a daughter and a son. And she split from her husband around 1996, moved alone to California. Her family reportedly believed she became lost in her fantasies shortly after the divorce. Ashley Trout, Franklin's daughter, said Franklin spent beyond her means in California, concerning herself more with image than employment. Ashley, her daughter, reportedly confronted her mother about spending more than she should and lying. And she tells the journal, I don't think she had the ability to stop lying. When anyone started to tamper with that fantasy land, according to her son, it would get very, very dark. Her siblings saw her for the final time in 2009 at their father's funeral, and she was reportedly, she was re- reportedly to be cut from his will as he believed her claims of wealth, but inherited roughly $400,000, according to her sister. So she was arrested multiple times, 
for allegedly stealing from stores and possessing marijuana. She was evicted from her California rental property in 2013, and she went to Palm Beach Gardens, Florida. And her siblings hatched a plan with her Starbucks friends in 2022. Her brother rented an apartment and had her friends offer her a house-sitting gig to convince his sister to move in. See, this guy, even though he didn't really talk to his sister, was so concerned about his sister being homeless that he rented an apartment for her to live in. But he knew she wouldn't take it from him. So she got he got the friends at Starbucks to say, hey, Joe, can you do me a favor? I, I'm going to be out of town for renovations or whatever story they concocted. Can you house sit for me? And she lived there in that apartment that her brother secretly rented for her until her death in uh, July of last year. She, according to her son, she hurt so many people and nobody was more of a victim of whatever this illness was than herself. And I thought it was interesting for a few reasons. One, because clearly this was a very bright woman that had descended into mental illness. I thought it was also interesting that her family, even though they were estranged, really did want to help her and were prepared to spend money to help her, even if it was totally anonymous. But the thing about it that I find so interesting is that she was able to trick so many people into thinking she was a big shot when she was homeless. And I wonder how many other people are out there like this. I've known a few con artists over the years, but in most cases, you could tell they're a con artist. I, mean, I, I kind of go along with it because I'm amused by hearing their their stories of grandeur and so forth. But I feel like I can usually tell when someone's full of it. The people that she was dealing with, the University of Florida that planned this gala at the Four Seasons in Washington, they had no idea. They went through all this rigmarole because they thought they were getting there on, um, you know, uh, getting this $2 million check. In 2004, her daughter was taken to the hospital after a rock climbing fall in Japan. Franklin called the hospital and said she was flying there on Colin Powell's jet. Ashley tells the journal, I get my mom on the phone and I tell her, listen, here's the deal. There's no jet. You don't have access to Colin Powell's jet. And um, that's one of the things that led to the decline of their relationship. So I'm curious if you've known people like this, either in your own family or that you've encountered, that are homeless or totally destitute and are able to convince people that they're very well-to-do and influential. And I think there's a difference. I mean, there was a story of this Russian a con artist that did the same thing, Anna Sorokin. And I think they made a TV series about her. I think there's a difference if you're doing it with the express purpose of playing a con versus if you're doing it for because you're mentally ill. And in the case of um, this woman, Joe Franklin, I think it might have been both. I think it might have been both. 
But read the article. I really recommend it. It was really well written. I just posted it on Facebook. You could check it out. And I, um, I, I was really impressed with it. This was one of those things. A lot of times when I'll read the newspaper, you know, because I'm reading on the weekend six, seven newspapers, I'll, I'll just kind of glance at the headline, read the first paragraph, move on to the next article, figure out if it's going to be something that I'm going to be talking about or not. And this article I could not stop reading. I thought it was absolutely riveting. 800-848-9222. Uh, it's 800-848-9222. Uh, you're welcome to comment on anything else we have covered thus far. Gnome Layden coming up in about 13 minutes. Let me say hello to Felix in Pennsylvania. Hi, Felix. Yes, hello, Frank. Hey, I was just wondering, is it possible he didn't get COVID because he worshiped Satan? Probably. Probably, uh, Felix, probably. Striking resemblance in voice to Joaquin, even more so than the resemblance between Ray McGovern and Robert from Suffolk. Garrett, what's on your mind? Oh, Frank, thank you. That was very interesting about um, Joe uh, Franklin. Uh, and uh, Oh, this is Gary, not Garrett. Oh, football. gotcha. Okay. I would yeah. Hey, Gary, I haven't seen you in the neighborhood anymore. Have you moved? Down of Rupert Murdoch's son, I think it is Lachlan, who's uh, not into the whole born-again thing. I think that's what that was, Frank. Interesting. Uh, yeah, it's like Ahab and Moby Dick, you know, it's like he's he, he really hates that kind of thing, so he decided, you know, to uh, go after this guy and, uh, uh, you know, Minimize his uh, born again, uh, whatever, in uh, the context of Vox Fox football. Now, Gary, um, I haven't seen you in the neighborhood recently. Have you moved? Uh, no, I'm still exactly, yeah. Okay, all right. Well, I'm glad you're doing well. You know, I, uh, you know, the story we're telling about Joe Franklin, I, I think, was interesting. But, you know, everybody that has encountered you over the last 30 or 40 years, they describe you and a lot of the calls that you've made to me over the years and to other radio programs, you come across this way, very intelligent, very bright, very on the ball, very quick-witted. But, you know, when people see you standing in the middle of the street with a homemade sign protesting this cause or that cause – there are people that will think maybe you look a little disheveled, maybe a little on the homeless end of things. Not that you are, but you could see how people lost. The, you know, look, look that way. Um, what? How did that happen, Gary? How did you go from being this, you know, a very debonair, uh, astute, you know, a guy that was, you know, part, went privately private school educated to being someone that a lot of folks try to avoid when they see protesting in the street? Well, I mean, uh, you kind of put me on the spot there. Um, well, I'm genuinely curious. I'm not trying to ask an embarrassing question, uh, but I, I'm, you know, there has well, been a transition. Are, but that's all right. No, I'll roll with the punches, Frank. No big deal. Uh, I, I went to Cornell, by the way. No, I know. I did I college know. radio. There was no money in that. Uh, then I went into uh, the Brooklyn Navy Yard. Uh, with the Socialist Workers Party, you know, the Trotskyists. Right. And uh, uh, then I taught for a while at the Board of Ed. I was a history teacher. And that was a big struggle trying to, uh, long story short, I lost that. 
Well, what happened? Why did you? Why did you? Why did you lose that? Why did you lose time or another? Why did you lose that job as a teacher? I haven't done much protesting in several years, although I, but Gary, I, I support. Gary, uh, Gary, why, why did you lose that job as a teacher? With Curtis over at the, Gary, the illegals. Gary, why did you lose that job but, as a teacher? Uh, no, your point is well made. No, no, no. I'm asking. I'm asking a genuine question. I'm not. I'm not trying to make a point. I'm yeah. asking. Well, you know, not uh, failure is something that's uh, not easy to. Um, Embrace, you know. Did you ever? And, and this uh, is personal. And, and, uh, this is personal, Gary. And, and, if, uh, and if I'm get, this aspect is personal, but was the was your losing your job as a teacher related to any sort of addiction or substance abuse? Uh, no, sir. Do you do you know why you lost that job as a teacher? Well, I was a history teacher, social studies teacher, and. You know, controversy, uh, you turn on the radio and you hear it all the time, all day long, right? And not everybody agrees with everybody. So if you got a boss that doesn't appreciate your point of view, good luck. Well, fair enough. Believe me, I, uh, I know what that's like. Uh, Gary, how do you make a living these days? Oh, uh, uh, I was on the Brooklyn uh, Bridge selling souvenirs until the day before yesterday when uh, that got shut down in a big uh, media hoopla. Uh, right now, I'm not working at all, and uh, I get, what do you call that, Social Security. I'm 67, going on 68. Um, but... Uh, uh, yeah, it's always good to talk to you, Frank. You too, and, Gary. Uh, Gary, I want to wish I, you the I best. I into uh, Joe Franklin, uh, the original one, in his man cave over Show World Center. You know, you know what I'm talking Absolutely. about? Absolutely. It was there many times. Uh, uh, 300 West 43rd Street. No doubt about it. Yes, sir. Gary, thank you. I'm wishing you the best of luck. I hope, uh, I hope things go well for you, okay? Well, thank you, Frank. Always nice to be with you. Take care. You know, it's funny that Gary called because he was on hold even before I did that story about Joe Franklin. But Gary, in some ways, is the exact type of person that I'm talking about here. And in other ways, he's the exact opposite. Now, if you meet Gary, you would never know that he went to one of the top private high schools, you know, in our community. You would never know that he went to Cornell. You would never know that he's a teacher. Honestly, when most people see Gary at a protest or just standing in the middle of the street holding a sign that says, you know, Frank Morano supports war with China or something like that, um, you, he looks like a homeless person. So, And I do wonder how that transition takes place. But Joe Franklin, the woman we're talking about here in this Wall Street Journal story, she clearly and – and I wasn't trying to mock Gary at all, and I hope it didn't come across that way. I'm just kind of genuinely curious at – how he ended up in his station in life. Joe Franklin, this woman in this Wall Street Journal story, she didn't come across that way at all. She looked like she could be a big shot and sounded like she could be a big shot. But her mental illness clearly did her in. 800-848-9222. 800-848-9222. Howard is in Elmhurst. Hi, Howard. Hi, um... My wife and I, my, my wife Susan and I, used to go to uh, Montclair, New Jersey, 
they had a great book, a great bookshop where you got a lot of acting books and quite a few uh, antique shops. So there was this one antique shop where we went to and we got like lace dishes. She always and there was a woman in the back. She was she was a great great help to us. Very kind older lady with white hair. She usually wore like a black lace dress. Very polite and very very nice, very helpful. And uh, one day when we came there, she wasn't there, so we assumed she died. But they said you'll never believe what happened to her. She she retired in Israel, and she was married to seven seven of the richest men in the world. And I always wondered about that, you know. So that's the story, you know. It, well, did you ever find out if that was true? No, I didn't. I interesting. I should have. You know, I'd be curious. Further. That's very interesting, Howard. Thank you. You know, I've talked before. There's a great uh, singer, a, a great artist uh, named Solomon King. He passed away about 18 years ago, 19 years ago now. He was a friend of mine. Incredible voice. His biggest hit, uh, the only one you'll ever hear on the radio, unless it's my show where we play a bunch of his hits, is She Wears My Ring. Um, Tony, in fact, see if we have any Solomon King. And Solomon King was this larger than life figure. He was six foot eight. And when I met him, I think he was in his 70s and he just towered over everybody. In fact, when I would meet him, he would say, um, see, this is a little bit of She Wears My Ring, which was his really only big hit song in the United States. Uh, but um, we'll, we'll, let it, we'll let it play underneath a little bit. And then when we get to the chorus, we'll let him <clears throat> hit the high notes. But I was introduced to Solomon King from Vic Christopher and Vic had kind of clued me in to what Solomon King was all about. And Solomon King would concoct the wildest fantasy stories ever. And a lot of people would believe him uh, and because he had this aura, this presence about him. And he would say, um, <clears throat> I would say, you know, King, we, I called him King. How tall are you? Well, I'm six foot seven and a half. I used to be six foot eight, but I shrunk. And he would have these stories. He was born as Alan Levy. And then he became a um, lounge singer named Randy Leeds. And he claimed to have a near-death incident where, an accident, where um, his life flashed before his eyes and Jesus came to him. Hey, let me hear this. This is, what a voice. And it's such a shame that he's forgotten. And when I met him in the in the seventies, when when he was in his seventies, he still sang like this. And he was the greatest karaoke singer of all time, a ringer in any karaoke contest. But I'd ask him, "Hey, King, what are you up to?" Uh, he'd look like he was wearing pajamas, and uh, he'd say, "Oh, I'd say, what are you wearing?" Uh, he's wearing pajamas. It looks like blue pajamas. He says, "This is the most expensive uh, jumpsuit in the world." Uh, Designed for me personally by Johnny Versace, uh, and it's worth about five thousand dollars. And just every story like this was just wild, and it was really something because in New York, you know, you see a lot of celebrities, and he would just point to so and so and say, "Oh, there's Chris from NSYNC. Tell him I want to meet with him." And he had a presence about him that Chris from NSYNC would come over and, and talk with him. But after a while, you see, he has no money. You see, you're picking up the tab for all these dinners and drinks. In short order, you see what the story is. 800-848-9222. Joe is in Queens. Hi, Joe. Yeah, 
Yeah, Frank. Uh, when did this thing happen with with the check? When did that happen? Th- that was. Um, I, I have to check on that one. You know, uh, twenty fourteen. Twenty fourteen. Okay, so she kept up the style of uh, two thousand two with the daughter, saying Colin Powell was going to fly uh, her over right, in his 2004. private jet. Right. So that's kind of very interesting that she kept this type of uh, veneer that long. That part of the story is fascinating. Like, usually if someone would, would do something like that, they would peter out on it, I would think, by 2014, you know? I would think but, so, yeah. You know? I mean, energetically, how did you keep that up? And it's like, okay, if you tell someone you're 6'8", like that previous guy we're talking about and you show up and you're not six eight people can find that out pretty easily so i'm surprised that it lasted that long that part of it is fascinating it is fascinating thank you joe 800 bob is in new jersey hi bob hey how you doing frank a funny story about in 1990 my me and my brother-in-law were married to the sisters he comes from greece he poor, he's poor, he's not rich. He comes over. My uncle on supermarkets in Manhattan, this and that. And his last name, it's almost exactly like a boss's name. It's not Kassimatidis, but it's Konstantinidis. So we didn't figure out nothing after we forgot about the stories then. Your boss bought the radio station, and I learned his story. I, I didn't know the guy before. I learned his story. I say that was, must be his uncle. My brother-in-law would sell you Brooklyn Bridge, and you would buy from him. Well, now, in your brother-in-law's case, Bob, did he do it to con people, or did he do it to because he was mentally ill? No, he's not. He just want to glorify himself. Interesting. He tell my he tell my wife's sister he owns the island. He he has the houses in different countries. Like we're doing deliveries to the supermarkets, uh, we go to the same stores. And they say, oh, your brother-in-law has a house in this country. Your brother-in-law has a house in this country. I'm I, I just rolling my eyes. He, he doesn't have any of it. It's, it's just his fantasy. <laughs> that is wild. Uh, thank you uh, for that, uh, Bob. You know, it's funny. Some William Shatner lies a lot, but he lies purely for humor purposes. He knows he's lying. He's not conning anyone. He's not trying to get anything out of anybody. I've, um, the couple days that I spent with him, I would see him do this, but he did it purely for humor purposes. And I would ask other people about things and he would do, he would lie about nothing, right? I mean, he would claim that the jacket he was wearing and was going to auction off for charity actually belonged to Eddie O'Hare, the famous American aviator during World War II. So, I mean, people do lie for uh, different reasons. In Shatner's case, it's for humor. In Solomon King's case, I don't know if it was mental illness or because he was conning people. In the case of this Joe Franklin, I think it was mental illness. And in the case of Bob's brother-in-law, I think, you know, maybe he's just a liar. 800-848-9222. Mike is in Tennessee. Hi, Mike. Hey, Frank. I thought you'd get a kick out of this. I hadn't thought of this in years. I'm 56. It's back in the early 80s. There was a state representative. I don't know. I can't remember what he'd done. 
I was uh, in high school, and uh, he was a Burks. He got elected. He's state representative. He got elected while he's serving time in prison. <laughs> I ain't kidding. I hadn't thought of that in years till you get to talk about that. That is so funny. I'm just looking this up now. Was no, his... no, I'm kid- I ain't kidding. His name is Burks. It's Fentress County, Tennessee. Are you sure it wasn't Tommy Burnett? It's Burks. Oh, Burks, not Burnett. Okay, um, I will. Uh, I will look into that. That's a. That is interesting. <laughs> I ain't kidding. You can go. I don't know if you have, but he made the Wall Street Journal. Dad's got uh, the paper from. Uh, I think it was the Wall Street Journal. <clears throat> and I told. Uh, I'm gonna tell Dad when he finds it because it was in the paper, uh, and. Uh, <laughs> I'm gonna get it. I'm gonna laminate. Yeah, it was um, uh, you know, there was a Tommy Burks that was a state representative. That That's it. well, he was from what I'm seeing, and this is pretty interesting too. He was assassinated by his Republican opponent less than a month before the election. Are you familiar with that? No. Well, that's I was in high school then. Yeah, it's really interesting. It looks like he was in office in the in the in the seventies and the eighties. So it's uh, it's an interesting story. Hey, um, uh, thank you for the call, Mike. Noam Leiden is here. Let's get an idea what's in the news from Noam straight ahead. The other side of midnight with Frank Morano. Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. One of the greatest living news people, uh, a man who uh, is able to create vivid pictures with words and find the stories that we've all missed. It is my great pleasure right around this time every morning to be joined by the inimitable, the one and only. Stand by for the other side of Midnight's News. And its affiliated stations present national and international news with Frank Morano and news director Noam Layden. Their summary of the world news and personal comments. Get the rest of the story. Hello, Noam. Good morning, Frank. Uh, thanks for those kind words. But I want to point out that Charlie Osgood passed away, mm. the CBS news anchor and journalist, yesterday at 91. He was one of the greatest journalists of our time. I mean, amazing. And I had the distinct pleasure to work in the office right next to him at CBS. 
and got to interact with him an enormous amount. And I'm sorry that it happened early in my career because I didn't appreciate it as right. much as I would That's have appreciated it. It doesn't it? And I think now, like, wow, because he used to come into my office and say, hey, what are you working on today? And then he was planning for his CBS Sunday show, but he was still doing his radio reports. Just a really nice guy invited us to our Christmas parties. At his, uh, he had an apartment on West Fifty Seventh Street, and then also lived in New, had a house out in New Jersey where he passed away. But I'm sorry to see him going. I'm, Same here. It, you know, it's one of the things. You're sorry I didn't keep up the relationship either because he oh, was just a absolutely. really absolutely. nice guy. So sorry to see him go, but a great, great journalist. The story out of a bedroom community in new of New York City, a town called Nyack, just a beautiful town not too far away from the city. There is this beloved basketball coach there. His name was Dave Segrist. He died back in 2006 from cancer, but he was considered the basketball coach of all time at Nyack High. So much so, they put his name on the scoreboard. They put a scholarship in his name, just be loved. And then a couple years ago, someone came forward and said that his assistant coach, who had sat next to him on the bench for decades, had sexually abused a number of students in what was the worst kept secret, they said, on campus. So now fast forward to last night. There's a debate whether to take Dave Seacrest's name off the scoreboard, take those scholarships away. Now, he's not the one. That allegedly committed these acts, sexual acts. Joe Paterno situation all over again. But he sat next to this guy. So people passionately speaking out on both sides. You had former students who said everybody knew this was going on. There's no way Dave Segrist did not know. And then you had, which was hard to watch. You had his family members get up who were trying just to protect his legacy, not right. as a basketball coach, but just as a human. Uh, and here's what it sounded like during this debate last night. Dave was a good man who did good things. He devoted his life to Nyack Public Schools and the Nyack Baseball Program. Yes. Yeah, so what would you do in this case? Would you take his name away? Would you take those scholarships away? Or would you leave them as he was honored before he passed away? Absolutely keep them. Well, last night they voted unanimously to take it all away. Yeah. Oh, my. Yeah. So his name's taken off the scoreboard, the scholarship gone, all because he sat next to somebody who allegedly, by the way, the person who is named in these sexual assault cases has never been charged. What? Yeah. And he's still living? He's still around, yeah. Did, did he get a lot of lawsuits uh, from the Adult Survivors Act when that happened? Not that know? I know of, no. Oh, well, that even more so. Yeah. Uh, that is uh, absurd. Isn't that a crazy well, story? It's terrible. But yeah. We're in an era where even Kate Smith is controversial. Yeah. So, so I mean, here you go. This, I mean, just, well, well, I know. We said it absurd. I mean, he died without knowing any of this was going on, of course. Oh. So, Amazing to me. I saw this report yesterday, and I was shocked by how many Holocaust survivors are still alive today. They did this report. It took them a number of years. They don't really know specifically if it's 100% accurate, but they spent an enormous amount of time searching for Holocaust survivors all around the world, and the number they came up with was 245,000 survivors still alive today. 
which is shocking to me when wow. you think about how long ago those atrocities took place. They're living all around the world. More than half of them are in Israel, uh, 18% in Western Europe, about 14,000 live in Germany, which might surprise some people, 16% here in the U.S., and 12% in some of those former Soviet Union countries. Mm. Part of the reason they did this count was just to see how many were around. The average age is 96. Now, these were all survivors who were kids at the time of the Holocaust. Otherwise, it wouldn't work out mathematically. Uh, the oldest, of course, are old and frail. Even the 86-year-old, many of them are not in great shape. Sure. The uh, German government also, of course, keenly interested in this study that's done because they still pay out to the survivors. Mm. It is a big part of their budget. Over the years, they've paid $90 billion to Holocaust survivors, much smaller amount now. No, but now that they found some people that were not on this original list who will get compensation from the German well, government. Well, that's interesting. Thank goodness. The, the folks that are on this list that get paid by the German government, it doesn't matter where they live. They could live in the United States or the Soviet bloc countries doesn't or matter. anywhere else. Yeah. And not, they don't have to live in Germany. No, the, wow. these are not li- life-changing huge payments, I'm, but, right. they are, but so, it is money. It's absolutely. like getting a, a – yeah. it's like adding to your pension absolutely. essentially. It has been really cold all over the country. Of course, we're warming up here on the East Coast today. But there is a alligator park in Ocean Isle, North Carolina. And what they have done is they have taken alligators that can no longer live out in the wild and they take care of them, which is nice. You've heard of these reserves. Lots of times other animals do this. But in this case, it's alligators. And um, it's an outdoor park. And North Carolina doesn't usually get very cold, like freezing cold. But over the last couple weeks, it did get freezing cold. And over the last weekend, it was below freezing in this outdoor swamp. And they weren't sure... How are these alligators going to survive? They thought they might not because they cannot regulate their own temperature. So we're watching on, and I tried to communicate with this guy yesterday. He did not get back to me. But there were 12 alligators who all survived the freezing temperatures in these frozen ponds. They had totally frozen over. And what they had done is they intentionally uh, had taken their, for lack of a better word, their snouts, the long part of their mouths, They had put them just above the water so they could breathe. And then the rest of their bodies hung essentially motionless in the frozen block of ice in this pond. And the amazing part is all 12 of these alligators who could not regulate their temperature so had to take on the temperature around them survived. Well, I know alligators are cold-blooded, right? So isn't that the kind of thing that cold-blooded creatures are normally able to do more effectively than those of us that are warm-blooded? But, of course, they don't normally live in extreme temperatures where it goes below freezing, so they really had no idea what was going to happen. They really thought that they would probably lose a number of these alligators. Mm. They did not. They were fascinated. They had no sense of what they were going to do, but then there's video of this, and I can send it to you so you can put it up on Facebook page, uh, where their snouts, for lack of a better word, are right above the frozen line, and they're sitting there motionless, and thank God... They don't know how long this would have lasted if this frozen, uh, freezing temperatures had lasted more than three days, which is what it was in North Carolina. They don't know if they would have been able to regulate their temperature for that period of time. Uh, But for the three days, they were able to, and it's warmed up in North Carolina, and they're fine. That is wild. Uh, Thank you, Noam, for your service. And now you know the rest of the story. I am uh, very glad that Noam mentioned uh, Charles Osgood because uh, I was going to talk about him a bit uh, right now. 
And uh, Charles Osgood was someone that I never, as Noam did, had the opportunity to meet, but someone I always wanted to meet and, and talk to and interview. I was a, I've been a fan of Charles Osgood for the last 40 years or so. Initially on radio, I loved his commentaries on CBS radio with the Osgood file. And then I became a turbocharged fan of his on television as the host of CBS Sunday Morning. Now, television and radio, there are some people that have mastered both media, but it's rare. Um, Usually, you know, Marshall McLuhan used to say that uh, television is a cool medium and radio was a hot medium. And so the kind of personality, the kind of person that had appeal on television wouldn't always have that same sort of appeal on radio. Now, for starters, if you ever hear my uh, Racket Report podcast or if you ever see any of my Facebook promotional videos, I the last thing you hear me say is the same thing that Charles Osgood would sign off on television with. I'm Charles Osgood. We'll be off next Sunday morning so that CBS Sports can bring you a special presentation of the NFL from London. Please join Jane Pauley here again in two weeks. As for me, I will see you on the radio. I'll see you on the radio, which was also the title of one of his book, uh, one of his books. This man was an incredible man because he was so out of central casting for television. On television, he came across, he wore that distinctive bow tie. He had hosted uh, CBS Sunday Morning from about 1994 to, I think, 2016 or so, and then continued on radio for another year or two. And on radio, he didn't sound like your typical radio announcer. He sounded very different. And on both TV and radio, he had a very distinctive style, which he attributed to never coming out of the journalism machine. It was almost more like Rod Serling. And when I would see him introduce these segments on CBS Sunday Morning, which he did brilliantly, it was to me like Rod Serling introducing an episode of The Twilight Zone. He told Broadcast Magazine in 1985 I never took a journalism course or worked for a newspaper or news department of a broadcast operation. Whatever is unique or different in my style would probably have been drummed out of me in journalism school on the first day. One of the things that he did on radio, which I always got a kick out of, was he would rhyme. And what I didn't know, and uh, the New York Times mentioned this in their obituary of him, is that his style didn't include regular rhyming until he was in his 40s. And he said, one day in a particular story, I incorporated a little rhyme just as a way of doing something different. And he said, I immediately heard from a management type in the news division, very nice, Charlie, very clever. Don't do it again. Needless to say, I did. And I loved the stories that he would find. I loved everything about him. He was a guy that was born in New York, but uh, raised in Baltimore during World War II and wrote a book about that, wrote a memoir called Defending Baltimore Against Enemy Attack. And he recounts his perspective from the age of nine, went to Fordham, Fordham University, graduated with a degree in economics. He did volunteer at the campus radio station, just like uh, our very own Gary from Staten Island. And what he would do is he would play piano between records on his shows, and he would frequently collaborate with other students, including Alan Alda. 
Alan Alda went to Fordham at that time and was on the radio station as well. And then he goes into the Army, he enlists in the Army, and was basically the announcer for the United States Army Band. And then he comes out, gets a job on a few other radio stations, and was with the ABC radio network for a good part of, well, for a bit of the 60s. And then that's when he started using the name Charles Osgood, because Charles Osgood wasn't his name. His full name was Charles Osgood Wood III, and he would always use Charles Wood. But when he went to, I think, ABC, there was another person there that was named Charles Wood. So they didn't want to have or a Charles Woods. They had an announcer named Charles Woods, and they didn't want to have a Charles Woods and a Charles Wood. So they told him to pick a new name, so he used his middle name, as his last name, and he said it had worked out well, and it's a little more distinctive and a little bit more professional. I'll never forget when he made the decision to leave CBS Sunday morning, and when he made that announcement, it was, um, you know, I I don't want to say I was in tears uh, because I wasn't, but I felt like an era was ending, and it was an era that I really enjoyed. He was a, a big part of my Sunday mornings for so long. Uh, This is uh, part of his farewell announcement. Some of you may have heard rumors lately that I won't be hosting these Sunday morning broadcasts very much longer. Well, I'm here to tell you that the rumors are true. For years now, people, even friends and family, have been asking me why I keep doing this, considering my age. I am pushing 84. It's just that it's been such a joy doing it. Who wouldn't want to be the one who gets to introduce these terrific storytellers? and the producers and writers and others who put this wonderful show together. I want to thank all of them and all of you, our still growing audience, for all of your support and encouragement. It's been a great run, but after nearly 50 years at CBS, including the last 22 years here at Sunday morning, the time has come. And I really, look, Jane Pauley's fine, but the show has not been the same since he left. Here's Charles Osgood back in 1972, what he sounded like back then. And standing along the side of a highway watching cars go by is your idea of a good time. You'll just love the Indianapolis 500. True, they do go by very fast here, as fast as 195 miles an hour on occasion this year. The 500 is the Woodstock of mid-America. Here in the infield you'll find the kids enjoying the grass. More than one variety. The 500 reminds me of a definition I once heard of the life of an airline pilot. Hours of boredom punctuated by moments of sheer terror. So he's going to be missed. Um, Passed away at the age of 91, they say, from complications due to dementia. We'll do 15 seconds of fame in a moment. And uh, here was a little bit of his last radio broadcast. We've had some pretty fine broadcasters at walking halls of this building, and I got to know some of them, some of them and sometimes, in fact, almost every day, I learned something from, from them, from the Walter Cronkite and Charles Coralt. And sometimes you know, just made suggestions to me about what I, how I could make my work better. The Other Side of Midnight. It's the 
other side of midnight with Frank Morano. Charles Osgood, a uh, terrific entertainer and broadcaster who is no longer with us. All right, we're going to give you an opportunity to be heard for 15 seconds on any subject you like at 800-848-9222, 800-848-9222 as part of The Other Side of Midnight. This is 15 Seconds of Fame. Rocco. Yes, Charles Osgood, a national treasure. Holocaust survivors, international treasures. Two heroes that deserve all our praise. Israel now, Israel forever. Gary! Shakespeare said it like this. When in disgrace with fortunes in men's eyes, I all alone beweep my outcast state. and trouble death heaven with my bootless cries. Wishing myself more like him with friends possessed. Mike. Morning, Frank. I'd like to give glory and praise to my... uh, uh, And thank you for never editing or censoring our statements. And always remember, praise the... Steve. Should you more on more... Eddie. <laughs> there was a made-for-TV movie on Channel 2 in 1970, January 9th, with William Shatner called Soul Survivor, about the disappearance of a B-25 bomber in the Libyan desert during World War II mission. Good luck. I hope you find it. I do, too. I mean, I would think a movie about Soul Survivor would be a guy that gets sick from uh, having bad fish. Donna. Hi, I, hi Frank. This is Donna. Uh, I, I'm glad to hear about Gary because I was wondering what happened to him. Why he wasn't going around the neighborhood anymore? I used to talk to him. He's very well, you know, very intelligent. Yeah, so you've noticed that too. I'm glad I'm not the only one that was curious about that. I'll see you yeah, around the neighborhood too, uh, Donna. Thank you, Jose. James O'Keefe, formerly of Project Veritas, now is at O'KeefeMediaGroup.com. Please go to O'KeefeMediaGroup.com to support and donate. O'Keefe Media. Steve. This is a moron. This is a moron. This is a moron. This is a- Rusty. Yeah, why do you call illegal aliens a migrants? Well, I, because they fill in, fit in a lot of different categories. There are times, if I know they're illegal, I will just call them illegal immigrants. I don't call every illegal immigrant a migrant. Frank Morano, good day.